0: Well, it is great to be back with you Deborah and I and the kids have missed all of you while we were away in the states uh, the first time we've all been uh, home together since we moved here in 2019 so it was nice uh, it was an action-packed uh, action-packed uh, trip I think we're looking forward to a normal life which might feel like a vacation now as we can kind of rest and recover from time with family time at General Assembly and and so forth uh, but as I was in the States, I was kind of catching up on the news and what's going on, and the question stuck out in my mind, and it connects to the sermon this morning, or to the psalm this morning is, what should we do when law and order break down? What should we as Christians do when law and order break down? Several experiences during my time in the States uh, begged this question what should we do? when law and order break down. The Covenant School Nashville shooting was present in my mind as I walked through the convention doors in Memphis, Tennessee for this year's General Assembly. I think most of you are aware of of that as we as we talked about it a few months ago and prayed for the, the the PCA church family that underwent that horrific ordeal. Monday morning, the PCA stated clerk, Bryant Chapel stood up before us and just let us know this was a pre-meeting before the general assembly that the police had picked up chatter about a mass shooting at the general assembly so there were there is a lot of talk that the same kind of thing that happened at the covenant school nashville was going to happen at GA because it was publicly known that this year's General Assembly would be dealing with issues of sexuality, including a petition to the government against gender reassignment surgery, especially for children and we were debating some very serious issues, and the police uh, presence at GA this year was unprecedented from any other time and I have to admit that when dr. Chapel said mass shooting, a a tone of fear was struck in my heart. They didn't know if there would be protests or what what would happen. And I was, you know, more than a little bit scared. I got over it, but more than a little bit scared if I'm just truly honest. You know, it's easy to talk about these things when they're at a distance, but when there's a potential of a gunman coming here, you know, it kind of changes how you think about things. What should we do when wicked people breathe real threats against us for being Christian? But it wasn't just the assembly that was under threat. A colleague was driving me home one evening after GA. We, we went out. A good buddy of mine, a fellow pastor, we, we had dinner. He was driving me home back to his place where Deborah and I were staying. And it was getting dark, and we found ourselves in uh, a particularly bad street, and all of a sudden he reaches over and unlocks his his armrest to and pulls out a loaded handgun and puts it sets it right there between us on on the armrest as we're moving really quickly past the speed limit through this part of town lawlessness has so increased in a lot of the cities in the US after the defund the police movement and there are places you shouldn't go, even more than there were before. And the police are having a very hard time keeping up and controlling the lawlessness that is taking place in a lot of the cities there. What should good people do when criminals control the streets? <clears throat> Finally, just one last experience from my time in the U.S. There are many good experiences too, but Congress is currently investigating the weaponization of the federal government. Okay, so that was a big news headline. This is obviously a politically contentious issue, and wherever the truth may lie, it is fairly clear that in some cases there is a two-tiered justice system where if you are a particular political elite, you can get away with stuff that ordinary people could never get away with. And they'd be in prison for decades for. And yet some are not receiving equal treatment under the law. And it looks like the federal government, at least in some cases, is being weaponized for political gain. And these concerns go right up to the highest levels of government. As a citizen of the U.S., that kind of stuff bothers me right? It should bother all of us. What should we do when the foundations of justice are assaulted by the people in charge? So these experiences I had while in the U.S. beg the question, what should we do when law and order break down? And it's not only in the U.S. where these things happen. The, The countries that you come from I'm sure you could share many examples where you've seen similar things happen. What should we do when law and order break down? And in Psalm 11, which we are going to study this morning, David gives voice to a very similar question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the wicked attack the foundations of God's righteous order in the world, David shows that God's people must act in two ways. So we're going to look at those two ways that we're called to act in light of a situation where it seems like law and order is breaking down, where evil is winning. So what should we do? That's what Psalm 11 is all about. How should we respond when evil seems to have the upper hand and is attacking the foundations of law and order in this world. So the first action David David calls us to is to take refuge in God. So number one, take refuge in God. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. You know, wherever there is a biblical framework of law and order in this world, It is God's gift. It is God's gift, even though it's all imperfectly exercised. Wherever there is a biblical foundation of right and wrong in the world, it is God's gift. And the wicked seek to undo that wherever they can. They will chip away at God's law wherever they can just incessantly chip, chip. They'll, they'll try to grenade it. They'll try to blow it up. They'll do whatever they can to undo God's law and order in this world. And there are times and seasons where it really feels like evil has the upper hand. Like if the government is taken over, like what can you do? What can plebes like us do? Right? When the persecution against the church is so fierce in parts of the world, what on earth can God's people do? It seems if you look at a map and you look at like world missions and you look at the persecuted church, it seems like there are parts of the world where evil is so physically rooted that there it feels like it's completely hopeless to think that could ever change, where godlessness is so physically rooted that it could never be another way. And this was the experience for many as David sat on his throne in Jerusalem. There were times, whether internal or external enemies, that God's people who were loyal to David felt like there is no hope. And in these opening verses, David gives expression to what they are saying. Now, we don't know the context of Psalm 11. Sometimes we're given a clue to it in the superscription of the psalm. But here we don't know the context of this this psalm, of what, what got David to write these words. It could be fleeing from Saul. It could be fleeing from his son Absalom. It could be fighting the Philistines or some other foreign power or something else entirely. We don't know. But in Psalm 11, something's going on that feels like evil is so bad and evil seems so powerful and unstoppable that the people of God are driven to despair. And David gives expression to their despair here in these opening verses where they're, they're saying, flee like a bird to your mountain. Look there in verse 1. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? These foundations that are evoked here are the foundations of society that they are attacking the worship and the law of god and whatever whoever the foe is the very foundations of the city of god are being assaulted and if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do that's what god's people are asking now note the two parties involved in verse 2 we have this is classic wisdom literature again On the one hand, you have the upright. And on the other hand, you have the wicked with their bow bent to slay the upright in heart. To slay the upright in heart. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. That's what God's people are saying. The wicked are besieging the city of God and God's people are in full bore panic where they're saying to David, flee, flee, run. Flee like a bird of the mountain. God's people do not know what to do. The evil attacking them seems so great. All that they can think to do is is run. Thinking back to G.A., What I mentioned at the start, if people threaten to shoot up the place because we stand for truth, well, if you're an honest person, you might think, well, it might be better to just stay home on this one. You know? Why risk your life? You know, play it safe. You know, how easy that kind of thinking is when wickedness is fierce. And around the world... You know, Churches and Christians are attacked, and I have no doubt that the enemy does so in order to intimidate God's people for gathering for worship and to in- intimidate God's people for bearing witness to Christ in the world. If they're scared enough, they'll stay home. They'll keep their mouth shut. That's what the wicked think, right? They'll stop preaching. They'll stop standing for truth in their schools and workplaces. So God's people are scared in Psalm 11. They don't know what to do. But David, what a contrast David is to the people that are looking up to him and telling him to flee. David says in verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? When the wicked attack the foundations of God's righteous order. We take refuge in God. We don't run. We take refuge in God. That is the response of faith. We say with David, in the Lord I take refuge in Yahweh. Right? Remember when we see Lord in all caps in our Bibles, it signifies the personal name of God, Yahweh. I am what I am. We take refuge in the I am when the wicked assail us. He is our shield and protector. Now, of course, there were times when David had to physically run. We we can read about some of those. He had to run from Saul. He had to run from Absalom, for example. But he never ran from God. But fleeing the kind of fleeing we're seeing here in Psalm 11, flee like a bird to the mountain, is a running that is better described as panic and unbelief, running away without faith. Psalm 11 is not denying common sense. There is a time when you ought to avoid a situation. There's a time when the church needs to go underground, if you understand my meaning. But nevertheless, God's people can stand with courage because God is their refuge. So David calls us to act in faith when the wicked seems overwhelming and trust our souls to God to take refuge in him. Let's look at the second thing he calls us to do in the face of overwhelming evil. He calls us to fight for justice. To fight for justice. We see this in verses 4 to 7. When the wicked attack the foundations of God's righteous order, David shows us that we must fight for justice. This Second principle action that David points us to is rooted in God's love for righteous deeds. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, David writes, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The confidence David needs to fight for justice is rooted in God's love for justice in God's love for righteousness. Now, let me take a, make a technical point before we expound the second half of the psalm. The words justice and righteousness are one and the same in the Hebrew and in the Greek. So if you were read the word righteous or righteousness, it's the same word for justice in the in the Greek or in the Hebrew, and in this case we're in the Hebrew in Psalm 11. The word here is Zedek. You might remember the uh, Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. Zedek is the word for righteousness or justice. In the Hebrew uh, and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which is affectionately known, Peter, hopefully you should know this, affectionately known as Hallet by seminary students around the world, <laughs> include the following definition of Zedek. That is justice of the human judge and of the king. It includes the elimination of anything breaking peace and the preservation of good order. So again, we're back to this idea of the foundations being the foundations of society is, are God's righteous laws. And God loves righteousness. He loves justice. And justice includes, as the word is used in Psalm 11, and as Hallett gives it to us in their study of the Old Testament, the elimination of anything breaking the peace and the preservation of good order. God loves when God's people, or anyone in society for that matter, works to eliminate anything breaking the peace and the preservation of good order. It's important that we understand this technical point, because I find that the, the idea of righteousness is sometimes vague. It's, the word righteousness is a, is a kind of a tricky concept to get sometimes. But when you read it in terms of justice, that's a lot more concrete. That's easier to understand. We don't use the word righteous very often in common speech, but we certainly use the word justice. It's much easier to understand. So let's unpack this section in light of that. this idea of righteousness, meaning justice. And let's, we'll see here three things... Three things that give David confidence to stand to fight for justice as it is rooted in God's love for justice. So first, a sub-point here under our last point. One, David's confidence to fight for justice is rooted in God's location. David's confidence to to fight for justice is rooted in where God is. And where is he? He says here in verse 4, "...the Lord is in his holy temple." The Lord's throne is in heaven. David's confidence to fight for justice is rooted in the fact that God is untouchable. The wicked may assault the foundations of his kingdom on earth, but it cannot touch God in heaven. The wicked trying to touch God's throne would be like someone taking a bow and arrow and trying to shoot the moon. It's impossible. It's folly. Recall Psalm 2, 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. He's laughing at those that are seeking to overthrow God's reign. In the reign of the Messiah, the Lord holds them in derision. God looks down with derision on wicked men. No scheme, no plot, no conspiracy, no rebellion can shake God's throne In heaven, all is under control in the throne above. And David's confidence to do justice is rooted in that unshakable fact. Second, David's confidence to fight for justice is rooted in God's just actions in the present. God's just actions in the present. David says in verses 4 and 5, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God sees what happens in the dark. God sees what happens behind closed doors. God sees everything. He sees what you do and he sees what the wicked do. He sees it all. God tests us. This this phrase is really interesting that David uses that his, his eyelids test the children of man. It's one of those phrases that hebrew scholars debate but the the general consensus here <coughs> is that god perfectly scrutinizes your motives not just your, he doesn't just see your actions he scrutinizes your thoughts your motives every intent of the heart and that includes us and that includes the wicked i mean he we are we are more than naked before god The old theologians described living in God's presence with the Latin phrase, "corum Deo. Coram Deo. That's a good phrase to lock in to your Christian memory, that we do life in the presence of God. All things are before him. And God is actively testing the upright and the wicked to see what they will do. It reminds me of the old... The old children's song, at least that we sang in America, Oh, be careful, little eyes. Oh, be... And one of the, one of the verses of that, of that children's song goes, Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little hands, what you do. Everything is before God who sees. Who sees it all. And that gives David courage and in the face of overwhelming wickedness to know that God is presently watching and he sees it all. He sees every kick under the table, right? Every knife in the back. He sees the things. You know, in professional sports, we get riled up sometimes because the referees don't call everything right. but then you can go and slow-mo and you can see what they didn't see, and then you get mad because there's nothing you can do about it. But God sees it all, and he's going to do something about it. And that leads leads us to the third, the third reason that David can have confidence. So thirdly, David's confidence to fight for justice is rooted in God's just actions in the future. So not just God watching presently, but his actions in the future. Look at verses 6 and 7. David says, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous, or we could say just deeds. The upright shall behold his face. In the final analysis, The Lord's enemies are going down. The enemies of the people of God are going down. Remember how Paul told the church in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now it may feel like a long time in coming to us, but God's patience means salvation. So the delay itself is mercy. Mercy but the enemies of God's people are going down. And here, David evokes. Do you know know what David's evoking here? With fire and sulfur? Does that ring a bell to you? David is evoking Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, when he says, fire and sulfur shall be the portion of their cup. Recall how Genesis 19 describes how God wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the map because of their rampant homosexuality. That's where the term Sodomite comes from. We read in Genesis 19, "...the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrows those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground." And Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a timeless cautionary tale of what God will finally and ultimately do to the wicked, this earth itself will be purged and purified as we long for the new creation to come. And David, as he reflects on the rampant wickedness, assaulting the very foundations of the city of God, takes courage in the fact that that same judgment that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah will fall upon all the wicked, including those who are assaulting the city of God in his day. Justice is never perfectly meted out in the present, but there will be a day when God's wrath will be unleashed on the wicked once and for all, and their portion shall be the lake of fire. The ultimate in brimstone and fire and sulfur. But the upright shall receive a very different portion. And David closes the psalm with his hope for us. Look there at the end of verse 7. The upright shall behold his face. The upright shall see Yahweh. We shall see the I am. The upright will behold his face. David knows that whatever happens to him on earth as he fights for justice, as the wicked assail him, he shall see the face of God. This is where we touch on the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that for those who fear God, they shall see his face. We shall see his face. We fear God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ because God sent Christ to deal with our sin, the very thing that would keep us the enemies of God. But God sent him that we might be rescued from the wrath to come. We fear God by placing our faith in Jesus, who dealt with our sins by his blood on the cross and who was raised on the third day for our hope that just as Jesus walked in newness of life, that will be our share in eternity too beholding the glory of our God, world without end. As you know, the early church was persecuted militantly in the Greco-Roman Empire. And all but one of the apostles were martyred for the faith. All but one. And John, writing to the beleaguered church, encourages them in his first letter We read that in our scripture reading this morning, and I want to read it again here. And you might want to open, uh, turn your Bible to that text and reflect on it this Lord's Day, where John says in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it doesn't know him. It did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The same hope of Psalm 11 is the hope that we have as God's people today. We shall see his face. And John goes on to deal with the same problems that we deal with in this life. Just as we read in wisdom literature where there's always two sides, there's the way of life, there's the way of death, there's the way of wisdom, there's the way of folly, there are the upright, and there are the wicked. And there's no other categories. You're in one or the other. You don't fall in in shades of gray somewhere in the middle. It's one or the other. And the same problem we face today is the one that the church faced in John's time too, where there are children of God and children of the devil. And children of the devil are those who celebrate sin. And as John says in John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is, again, the very thing attacking the foundations of God's righteous order. And right now, it seems like the children of the devil have the upper hand. It feels like there's no way to turn Western nations around today. It feels hopeless, doesn't it? How do you feel going to work on Monday? Are you going to stand up for truth? Or give in to the crowd? Or keep your mouth shut? And of course, there's a time to speak and there's a time to keep your mouth shut. There's a time to certainly not cast your pearls before swine. Right? But in Psalm 11, the focus is to fight for justice. The Lord loves righteous deeds. The Lord loves just deeds. And we are called to stand for truth in this world. To not be ashamed of those that can, throw, that can kill the body. Right? Don't fear those people. Fear the one that can throw soul and body into hell. That's Jesus' message to us. By way of uh, a closing exhortation, uh, I want to read something from uh, Dr. Mark Futado, who's a professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in And in his commentary on Psalm 11, he says this closing strophe, that is verses 4 to 7 that we've looked at in the second point, calls us to fight, not flight. Calls us to fight, not flight. When immortality reigns, we are called, uh, sorry, when when immorality reigns, we are called to be righteous, for the Lord loves justice. Just and right action is our calling in a world where there seems to be no justice at all. Seeing the face of him who sees all from his throne in heaven and who is yet near to us provides all the courage necessary for righteous action in a chaotic world. So I want to leave you with a few questions this morning. As you reflect on your particular situation, your family dynamics, your, the work dynamics that you're in, the, the social settings that God has divinely placed you in, in this life, what does it look like for you to practice justice, to fight for justice in those situations? What does that look like for you? I want to encourage you to think about that on this Lord's Day as you go home today. What does fighting for justice, delighting in righteousness, look like for you in the places that God has put you? Because God has put each one of us in particular places to bear witness to Him. One pastor cannot reach everyone. One pastor cannot even come close to reaching everyone. God calls each of us together as a kingdom of, as a royal priesthood to bear witness to the one who called us out of darkness and brought us into His marvelous light, to use Peter's words. So, what is taking courage in God? taking refuge in him, and fighting for justice look like in the particular places that God puts you throughout the week. God loves the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. Brothers and sisters, that's why we have courage. That's why we take refuge in God and that's why we have courage to fight for justice because God's on his throne in heaven and he loves watching us practice his law and loving the lost with the gospel and being unashamed of it. So may you be unashamed as you stand for Christ in this world that assails us. Let's pray.